I fell in love for the first time when I was five years old. She was very tall, very kind, very good athlete. She served us milk and cookies every day at 10.30 in the morning and taught us lessons about math and reading and history and the like. You've probably already guessed now that this love of mine was my kindergarten teacher. She was, other than my mother, the sweetest woman I'd ever encountered. I really did truly have a huge crush on her. Then one day, a substitute came about three months into the school year, and the substitute announced, boys and girls, I want to let you know that your teacher will not be coming back this school year. She's going to have a baby. I was thoroughly confused and very upset and hurt, and I began to cry, and as soon as the substitute teacher looked away, I bolted for the door. I ran crying all the way home, scared my mom half to death when I came running the house in the middle of the morning and announced I'm never going back to that school again. Now, I know it's a cute little story, and maybe you can dismiss it easily as just a little boy and, and, and his first crush, but I want you to know my heart was broken. Anytime your heart is broken, whether you're four or 14 or 64 or 104, a broken heart always, always hurts. Feelings of love and loss at any age are always real. I remember a boy in my, my eighth grade uh, youth group. He and a girl in that same group, eighth grader, were boyfriend-girlfriend. They were really cute together. They really enjoyed being with each other. Both of them had been very good, at, were very good athletes, and they loved to, to get a little one-on-one -on -one basketball game going against each other before the youth group would start, and they'd participate in all the games and things that, that we did. And then one Sunday night, he didn't show up. And then another Sunday night, he wasn't there. And so I called him at home and said, hey, are you doing okay? And he said, well, we, we broke up. I, I just don't know what to do. I, I'm really sad to say this, but I laughed. I thought he was just kind of kidding around. And there was silence on the phone. And then I said, oh, you know, it's young love and you'll be fine and don't worry. And again, there was silence on the other end. And finally he said, are you serious? I can't believe you're laughing at me. This hurts. And he hung up. I had to call him right back and apologize and say, you're right. I was wrong. I know it hurts. Five, five years ago, Julie and I led a, a trip through uh, the country of Greece. Part of it was on a boat around the, Grecian island, the Greek islands, and some of it was in, inland. It was called the uh, Footsteps in the Footsteps of Paul. We traveled to different places where the Apostle Paul had been. It was a, a marvelous trip. Our guide on, on the trip was a Greek woman named Alexandra. In heels, she was about this tall. <laughs> she was tiny, but she had this vast knowledge of history, of both biblical and ancient uh, Middle Eastern history. Just, just an amazing mind and a, 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 an uncanny ability to pull facts and notes and names from, from seemingly out of nowhere to explain to us different things we were seeing. But Julie noticed, and she's very intuitive, Julie noticed two or three days into our trip that her, Alexandra, our guide, had a bit of sadness in her eyes. In the, in the midst of all those lectures and stories and, and facts that she was sharing with us on our touring and, and visiting all the different places in Corinth and Athens and Thessalonica and the rest, there was a, a very soft but clearly there tone of sorrow. Julie even asked her, Alexandra, are, are you okay? And she said, 
people I care for deeply are in distress. I'm just worried for them. A couple of days later, we were on a long uh, section of our bus ride. I was sitting in the front with Julie and Alexandra, and we got into a conversation. Tell me about your family. Tell me about yours. And, and I told her about our boys and all, and I said, uh, Alexandra, do you have children? Are, are you married? And she said, no. And then the sadness was real. She said, I was hurt as a young woman, and I vowed never to have my heart broken like that again. And she looked out the window off into the, to the distance somewhere. Has your heart ever been broken? Have you ever had to experience the, the, the pain and the loss that comes when someone you care for deeply, someone maybe who said, I do, now says, I don't? Have you ever watched your child walk away and say, I will never speak to you again And even to this day, those are the last words you heard her say? Or maybe you've had a parent who abandoned you and left you and has never returned. The stories are as numerous as the people in this room, maybe even more so. I dare say that every one of us at some point has had our heart broken, whether you're four or 104. The pain, the loss is real. Oftentimes, the, a broken heart can lead to the loss of a dream. Now, I don't know what you dream of. Maybe, maybe you dream of a, of a pile of cash as high as, 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 as the mountains, or maybe you dream of a house that you always wanted up on the hilltop, or being successful, being on the front page of the paper and becoming famous, or all those kinds of things. But I would submit to you that the most powerful dreams any of us have are the simplest and greatest, the dream of having a hand to hold a shoulder to cry upon, a meal to share with one you love. The sacredness of the holy meal we'll take here at this table later today is blessed and nurtured by the love that Jesus brought to that moment where bread and wine are broken. It is the dream of humanity to have someone to share the meal, to hold a hand, to lose To lose that, to have one's heart broken, is to lose the dream. The story that I just read a few moments ago, though, is the story of Joseph. Joseph is a dreamer. Joseph is is one whose story uh, sometimes can be simplistically viewed as, as, as scenes in which he is lording himself up over his brothers. Maybe if you remember the dreams, there are several dreams where clearly he is the one who's been who rises to power and his brothers have to bow down to, to him. There's a variety of ways that the dream comes. To simplistically interpret that is to say he's an ego-driven, arrogant uh, young man. Maybe there's some of that there, but essentially what the storyteller wants us to see is that Joseph He's attached to the dream. Joseph understands that he's going to be used by God in some way to make life happen and make life abundant and full and alive. Somehow he knows this and he's, he's attached to that, to that very dream. His dreams point to the deeper reality of God's involvement in the world. And he wants his brothers, he wants his family to, to understand it. But his brothers, they're jealous. They're envious. There's that typical kind of sibling rivalry. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs notes that sibling rivalry is the root of religious violence. Then he goes on to say that the most primal form of violence and the dominant theme of the book of of Genesis is sibling rivalry. Julie and I have seen that. 
when, I, when we were deciding whether or not we were going to go to seminary, I, I applied to three different schools, one in San Francisco, one in, in Los Angeles, and one in Johnson City, Tennessee, about as far away from, from San Francisco as you could possibly get in miles and in, in culture. My family was in the midst of some turmoil. My mom and dad were going through a very ugly divorce, and there were all kinds of things that were pulling me back into the fight, and frankly, in some inappropriate ways, ways that were not helpful for my marriage and for my parents either. And so Julie and I said, which one of these is the farthest away? Let's go there. That might be the best thing to do. But not only that, a friend of ours who'd gone to that school had an eight millimeter a movie camera and an eight millimeter movie of Johnson City, Tennessee. Do you remember eight millimeter movies? Do some of you remember those? We sat there in his living room. He took down the painting on the wall. We used the wall for a screen and he showed us uh, these films, these little movies from Johnson City of snowfall, of the fall colors changing, of wonderful hikes in the Smoky Mountains. There was this one little place where there was a diner, a mom and pop diner, and they, our friends said they served the best pie you've ever had in your life. And Julie and I, we were convinced. It'll be a new adventure, a, a way to pull out from some of the mess that we were involved in with our families and really just kind of almost start over. And so we moved to Johnson City. A couple days after we were there, we discovered that Carter County, which was right next door to the, to, to the town where we were living, had the highest murder rate per capita in all of the United States. And we also learned that most of the people who were victims in those murders knew their murderers. And most of those were related. We know about the culture of violence, don't we? We know about this, this, this ugly phenomenon that continues to be a scourge in our land. Joseph's brothers, they hate him. They're jealous of him. They're envious of him. I think part of it, too, is they're frightened of the dream because what this dream says is they're going to have to change. If they're going to survive, if they're going to make it, Joseph can see a famine coming. If they're going to have food to eat and get along with their family, they're going to have to change. But the brothers are stuck in the status quo. Even though they know it's probably helpful to change, they don't want to change. Change is hard. Joseph sees the world through the eyes of heaven, and he dreams of a place where God's people will be fed and cared for. His brothers, though, in a fit of rage, they take away his coat. Do you remember the coat of many colors? They take it away from him. They throw him down in a pit. Anytime you see a pit in the Bible, that's a metaphor for hell. They throw him in this pit. They take a goat. They kill the goat. They use the goat's blood to cover his coat. They take it back to, their, to his father. And here's the first heartbreaking moment in the story. Jacob's son, the one who had been elevated by the father even, is dead. Then to make things worse, they sell him into slavery He's taken off down into Egypt. He gets a, a position as a slave in Potiphar's house. Potiphar is an a, a officer in the Egyptian army. Joseph is falsely accused of a crime. He's thrown into jail, thrown into prison, literally thrown into a pit again. And there's that metaphor. Do you see what's happening in the story? It's a story of resurrection. It's a story of how despite the fact that he's dying over and over and over again, being thrown down into the depths of hell, the dream does not die. The dream stays alive. His heart may be broken by the action of his brothers, but the dream lives. It's a resurrection tale. And the dream is alive. Eventually, he rises to become something like the prime minister of Egypt. He's second in command to the Pharaoh. And we get to today's story. After many years have passed, his brothers come to see him. 
And if you follow the story as I, as I read, it's clear that they don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. He's probably dressed like an Egyptian. He's probably developed an accent. Many, many years have separated them. Or maybe they don't want to recognize him. Maybe they're afraid. The way the story is told is brilliant in the way the, the author sets it up for us. You can just feel the tension in the room. What will Joseph do? Will he act out his vengeance? Will he take revenge? Will he have them killed? Will he sell them into slavery? What will he do? In fact, there was a verse right before the verse where we began. Verse 1 and 2 in 45 says that Joseph wept when he saw his brothers coming. He wept so loud that he could be heard across the courtyard in another house in Pharaoh's very court. You can just feel all of that. But then he stands before them and says, I'm Joseph. Is my father alive? Do you hear the heartbreaking beauty in that story? All of it, the anger, the frustration, the revenge, the love, the jealousy, the envy, the blessing, all of it is there in that moment the guilt of the brothers, the grief of the father, the revenge, the possible revenge, but then that simple declaration, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? Have you seen the movie Field of Dreams? Raise your hand. How many of you have seen the movie Field of Dreams? If you've not yet seen it, you need to see it this week. I, let me just say, it's on my top 10 list. of. I want to put the, the text of that movie in the Bible. I think it's that important. It's a, it's a great movie. It's the story of Ray, an Iowa farmer, who starts to hear these voices. If you build it, he will come. If you build it, and he builds in the middle of his cornfield. Remember the story how it goes? He builds a baseball field of all things. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, literally coming right out of the cornfield, Shoeless Joe Jackson a real baseball player from early in the 1900s, one who was suspended from playing because of his gambling, one who really didn't care about the gambling, just wanted to play ball. He comes walking in. And then the, the movie goes on, and it tells the story of these different ball players who've, who've had their hearts broken in a variety of ways, sometimes because of their own stupid actions like Shoeless Joe, others because of circumstances in life and the way it, it worked, and there's other stories. But then we get finally to the end. We get to the end, and all the ball players, all these old ghosts from the past, they've wandered back into the cornfield, and they're gone, except for two at home plate. There's Shoeless Joe and a catcher who's got all of his catcher's gear on, the mask and the protector and the rest. Standing not far away is Ray. Shoeless Joe looks at Ray, the farmer, and he says, if you build it, he will come. In that moment, do you remember the movie? The catcher takes off his mask, and Ray can see it's his father as a young man. He brings his little daughter over and says, John, this is your grand, and then he catches himself. This is, this is my daughter, Karen. John kneels down and says hello to her. She walks away, and then John takes off the rest of his gear, and he starts to wander into the cornfield. And then Ray says, do you remember the line? Dad, want to have a catch? If you weren't crying at that moment in the film, you're not a human being. <laughs> I'll tell you this. If there's a heaven... And I believe with all my heart there is. 
if there's a heaven, I'm going to find my dad. And we're going to find a ball. And we're going to have a catch. At the heart of that movie, at the heart of the story of Joseph, is the tale of resurrection, of God reaching down into a place where there is no life and bringing life again, whether it's into the pit of hell or the pit of your despair or your loneliness or your sadness or your worry or fear or anything else. God, God's spirit comes to us in that moment saying there is life and life abundant. That's what Jesus said 10 chapters, 10 chapters before the resurrection story in the Gospel of John. Jesus says to his disciples, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. That's the Easter story before we ever get to the crucifixion, the death and the resurrection. Jesus proclaims that God's desire is for us to have life. But if you know Joseph's story, you know that it doesn't end there. Five chapters later, Jacob has died. And now the brothers are filled with fear. It's a guilt-induced fear. Brene Brown says that fear-induced thinking causes us to design a story that is gigantic and overwhelming because fear does that. It might just be a tiny little seed, but it's enough. Their guilt, they still are carrying their guilt from what they did to their brother. And they, they are thinking, oh, now that our father has died, now he's going to act out his vengeance. Now he's going to kill us. Now he's going to send us away. Now he's going to sell us off into sl slavery. They're afraid. Old Testament, Walter Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann notes that the enduring power of guilt is something that every family knows. Every family knows. He points out that the only one in this story, and in fact in life, who can forgive the one who did the wrong is the one who's been wronged. Pharaoh could step in and order some kind of a presidential pardon, I suppose, but in order for the forgiveness to be real, Joseph, the one who was harmed, is the one who must speak forgiveness. So their guilt can be left behind. And he does in what is one of the most powerful moments in scripture or literature or anything else in history. They are forgiven. And Joseph then says, for what you intended to do was evil, but God instead worked in the middle of it, took it, twisted it, reformed it, reshaped it, and bent it toward, toward good. This is the singular promise of the Bible. It is the story of the cross. It is the story of life after death. It is the story of a heart being made new and whole again. Amen.